and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host each week. Today is an exciting day. We have the literary titan Doris Kearns Goodwin joining us. Won the Pulitzer Prize. Prolific author, best-selling author, presidential scholar, and really leadership coach. I think less by intention and more just by hard work and expertise. She's joining us today on leadership from her tour in California. Doris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Scott. Glad to be with you. Oh, so excited to have Doris Kearns Goodwin on leadership. We're super excited. I'm excited to get into the book. First, Doris, I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about your journey. Most people know you as you know, this best-selling author and really the, the world's or the nation's leading authority on presidential history and leadership, but you've had an amazing career since that and before that. Would you take a minute and kind of walk us through what your life's been and kind of how you got to where you are today? Well, I've always loved history, I think, from the time I was little, um, but it came into presidential history after graduate school because I was selected as a White House fellow when I was 24 years old, this fabulous program. Colin Powell was a White House fellow. Leslie Clark was a White House fellow. We had a big dance at the White House the night we were selected. This is during President Johnson's White House. He did dance with me, the president did, and he said he wanted me to be assigned directly to him in the White House, but it was not to be that simple. For in the months leading up to my selection, while I was a graduate student, I was active like many young people in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I'd written an article against him, which a friend of mine and I had said to the New Republic. We hadn't heard anything. It suddenly appears two days after the dance in the White House with the title, How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power. <laughs> so I was certain he would kick me out of the program. But instead, surprisingly, he said, oh, bring her down here for a year. And if I can't win her over, no one can. So I ended up working for him in the White House and then accompanying him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs the last years of his life. And it was the most formidable, colorful, amazing character that I'd ever met. So sad by the war in Vietnam, having cut his legacy in two, but a brilliant, brilliant politician. And that's what made me a presidential historian. That was my first book on him. And then I did, moved from one president to another, from him to FDR, from FDR to Abraham Lincoln, from Abraham Lincoln to Teddy and Taft. But I'd like to think the empathy I felt for him at the end of his life informed the rest of my book. So I wasn't judging the leaders from the outside in, but rather trying to understand who they were from the inside out. So you're saying comebacks are possible for people like you and me too? Comebacks are absolutely possible. In fact, all the four guys that I'm writing about in my new book, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and LBJ, they went through really difficult adversities and they came out wiser as a result. Probably the best example is Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, he was a good natural politician before he got his polio, somewhat arrogant, coming yeah. from a very wealthy background being handsome, having everything going his way. And then he contracts polio and is paralyzed from the waist down. And the extraordinary thing that happened to him because of that, he had to fight for years, even to be able to manipulate the wheelchair and pretend to be walking on his own power. But when he set up the rehabilitation center in Warm Springs, he made himself vulnerable with the other polio patients. He learned not only how to rehabilitate their exercise and their muscles, but give them joy in life, pleasure in life again. They'd have games in the pool when he'd be swimming with them, water polo, tag, they'd have wheelchair dances, and they learned to, to just love life again. So he emerged warm-hearted. He could empathize with other people to whom fate had also dealt an unkind hand, mm -hmm. became a much deeper, more empathetic leader than he would have been before. So Doris, let's talk about the book because it's got such great stories like the one you just told. Although I think the book has three distinct parts. 
I'd offer that it's really two books in one. The first, maybe half or so, is a presidential you know, uh, uh, tome on history, right? These four presidents and their journey to elected office. The last half, I was surprised to kind of learn, was really a very modern day leadership guidebook. I mean, anybody age 20 to 70 could pick it up right now, learn some great history on the how-to of these four gentlemen, but then find themselves uber relevant in how you bring these different leadership challenge they all four face to modern day uh, you know, relevance. Yeah, well, what interested me, for the last decade and a half, I've been actually lecturing on leadership lessons from the White House to various business groups. So I started talking to the CEOs and the various business leaders, and I started reading the leadership literature. And I realized that I've been interested in leadership from the time I was in grad school. And we used to sit around at night saying, where does ambition come from? How do you recognize yourself as a leader? How do others see you as leaders? And so I realized if I just took the four guys I knew the best, and, and I started them when they were young, before they were really good leaders, when they were going to screw up, there'd be struggles, they'd have to learn from their mistakes, and then took them finally to the presidency, that I could learn practical things from them. Because that's what really interested me. It's not even just for other leaders, but in our daily lives, some of the lessons that you'd learn about how you become a good leader affect all of us as individuals. So it was really fun. It was a great adventure. So I feel like I'm part of your world right now. Yeah, well, very much so. As, as a novice, I would not have thought to pick these four as you know this case study. You said you knew the most about these four. How did you kind of congeal around the two Roosevelts and the other two and the presidents? How those four came together? Well, it's because I had spent years with each one of them so that I didn't have yeah. to study a person all new. I had to just look at them through a new lens of leadership I'm, because I knew Lyndon Johnson, of course, but then it took me um, seven years to write Teddy Roosevelt. It took me longer to write about Franklin Roosevelt and World War II than it took the war to be fought. And then um, I, I, feel, I felt like these were the people that I had been so close to. When you live with them like that, um, you yeah. really feel like you're waking up with them in the morning. You're thinking about them when you go to bed at night. They become part of your life. Lincoln took 10 years for me to live with him. And then the movie was made about Lincoln. So that was another five years. Yeah. So these were my guys, as I like to call them. And I could look at them in a different way instead of studying somebody new. Doris, such a masterpiece. I love how close you bring us into the intimate lives of these four presidents. I think my favorite story in the whole book is about Johnson. I think he was an aide to a congressman from Texas, his first trip to DC as, an, as a junior aide. And would you tell the story about him with the other guys at the hotel? Right, he and all the other congressional secretaries lived in the same yeah. hotel, the Dodge Hotel. So he realized the way you learn as a leader is to follow mentors, people who know things more than you. So he's living with the other congressional secretary. So he goes into the bathroom every morning and he brushes his teeth four times so that new people can come in and he can start talking to them and figure out which ones know the, the ways of the hill better than others. And that at night he would take four showers so he could again meet with different people. And by the end, he figured out who are the guys that know the most and they would teach him. And then as a matter of fact, somebody said within a few months, he had learned more than congressmen who'd been there for 25 years. So he was always looking for people who could mentor him. And then later, Sam Rayburn mentored him, Richard Russell mentored him. And, and that's how he learned from other people who knew more than he did. And he absorbed almost like a sponge all of their knowledge. He was an incredible character. And that skill, I'm guessing, served him well in his presidency, not just his connection and researching skills, but helped him probably in legislation in the House and the Senate too. Well, the thing he really was able to do so well domestically was that he understood 
each individual wanted to be somehow understood and listened to. So he actually, when he first became president, he had each congressman over in groups of 30 until he saw every single congressman in the White House for dinner. Lady Bird would then take their wives on a tour of the mansion, and he would sit around smoking his cigars and, and drinking and learning about what it was that they wanted to be known for. So, for example, when the Civil Rights Act is being stalled on the Hill, and the only way he can get it through the filibuster that the Southern Democrats are posing is to get to the Republican leaders, because they're going to help the Northern Democrats. So he goes to Everett Dirksen. He understands Dirksen, because he's known him for a period of time. And he knows what he can bargain with, deal with. I'll give you an ambassadorship. I'll give you anything you want in Illinois. But mostly, he also understands that Dirksen wants to be remembered for something himself. So he says to him, Everett, you come with me on this bill. And 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. But it was that understanding and listening to other people, anticipating what they wanted, and then making it happen, which is a leadership trait. But he had it in spades when he could know the individuals. It was less likely when he had to deal with foreign policy. Doris, these four presidents didn't all take or have similar paths to the White House. You know, some of them were more linear than others. Would you take a minute maybe and walk through each of the four and kind of how they ended up in the very similar place coming from vastly different backgrounds? Well, the one that's most extraordinary really is Abraham Lincoln. Right, right. When he's only 23 years old, he decides to run for the state legislature. He's only had 12 months of schooling because his father kept taking him out of school to work on the hard scrabble farm. But he read books at every moment he could, scouring the countryside. It was said when he got a copy of the King James Bible or Aesop's mm -hmm. Fables, he was so excited he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. So he has the confidence somehow at 23 to decide, I'm going to run for the state legislature. And he makes this amazing statement. Everyone has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man and to be worthy of that esteem. And then he says in the thing, and I, I may not succeed, but I've been so I'm used to disappointment that I won't be very much chagrined. But then he says, but if I don't wake, make it this time, I'm going to try again and again and again. In fact, I think I'll try five or six times until it'll become hum too humiliating and then I won't try anymore. So it was that resilience that got him through that. He goes into the Congress. He tries for the Senate twice. He loses twice. And then he becomes a dark horse candidate for the presidency. He believed in himself and he had an extraordinary gift for language. And people saw this person who had the makings of a leader even before he became president of the United States, even though he hadn't had that much experience. Would you say that Johnson's path was one of the most deliberate of the four? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Johnson understood from the time he was probably three years old that he wanted to be in politics. His father was a state legislator. Yeah. He loved listening to him and listening to the stories that he and his cronies would tell. He loved going on the campaign trail with him. And even when he got into college, again, that same habit of finding a mentor, he decided the way to get power in the college was to get to know the college president. So he makes himself part of the janitorial crew that's mopping the floor right outside the president's office. The next thing you know, he's a clerk in the president's office. The next thing you know, he's running the president's office. He's, he's the man behind the throne. So again, it was that idea of using power to go forward. But the really interesting thing about Johnson is at some point that power had to be connected to purpose. And much later, he has a heart attack when he's majority leader of the Senate, a man for whom power had been preeminent. And then he decides, what if I died now? What would I be remembered for? And then he starts moving towards civil rights, even in the Senate, and towards civil rights in the presidency. It's, that's the big thing. When does the ambition for these guys become something more personal yeah. and something for some larger goal? And that's when they make that transference, I think. 
Let's move to the Roosevelt's. Uh, you know, I didn't know this until I read your book. I never realized that Eleanor Roosevelt was a Roosevelt prior to marrying Franklin. I think she was Teddy Roosevelt's niece. Is that right? Absolutely. I've shared, I've shared that in like a dozen other interesting tips at dinner parties since reading your book. Excellent. <laughs> what a, so thank you for making me look smart. Uh, speaking of Franklin Roosevelt, what influence did Eleanor have on some of his very progressive social policies? Do you think she was one of the most powerful first ladies uh, in history? Without a question. In fact, if every leader needs someone to give truth to power, that was Eleanor's role. He said about her that she was a welcome thorn in his side, that she was always willing to question his assumptions and to argue with him. You know, for example, during World War II, she sent so many memos to General Marshall about discrimination in the army that he had to assign a separate general whose only task was to deal with Eleanor Roosevelt. She had weekly press conferences where only women could come to her press conferences, female reporters. So all over the country, an entire generation of female journalists get their start because of Eleanor. She was the agitator. She was more moral. He had to be the politician. He had to bring consensus. So together they made an extraordinary team. And that's something that all these leaders have to do is to figure out how do you bring strong-minded people into your inner circle who can argue with you. Lincoln did it most famously by having his three major rivals, that's what team of rivals was mm -hmm. called for, into the top positions in his cabinet who had very different positions on slavery, on emancipation, on the union. But he would argue with them within and then at a certain point make a decision and then bring them around to that common goal, which was an extraordinary talent. Let's talk about Teddy. You know, like most Americans, I didn't know much about him other than the photographs of seeing him hunt big game and really post office. But I've also heard you say not only is he one of your favorite presidents, he's kind of one of your favorite people. Uh, bring some life to Teddy Roosevelt for us. Well, he had just unbounded energy. He had curiosity. He had a photographic memory. And he actually ended up loving politics. When he first went in at 23, he just said, I'm going in for the adventure, not necessarily he conceded later to make people's lives better. But then when he went into the tenements during the Industrial Revolution, he went into the slums as police commissioner, he really began to see that things could be changed and he had the power as a politician to do so. But what was so good about him was that he had a self-deprecating sense of humor. There's a moment when a journalist writes a review of a book that he'd written about the Spanish-American War, and he said he placed himself in the center of every moment of that war that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. Everyone's laughing in the country. But instead of getting mad, he writes to me and said, I, I regret to tell you that my wife and my intimate friends absolutely delighted with your review of your book, my book. Now you must come and meet me. It's that ability to laugh at himself, that humor that I think was so important. And, and he grew through power. I mean, he first was a state legislator and then he becomes a soldier. He's a civil service commissioner. He's a police commissioner. He's governor. He had a winding path to leadership, not necessarily an upward path. And that's, I think that's what gave him that set of experiences that he could draw upon. Doris, way premature, but down the road, if you were to update this book and you were going to add a fifth president to compare and contrast and discuss their journey, who would the fifth be? Probably George Washington. I mean, I wish I knew more about him. In fact, I'm involved in working on a documentary on him right now, so I'm hoping to learn enough. But he became president, set the precedence for everybody else, had that confidence and humility somehow, the combination of the two that these other characters seem to have too and it's the founding of the country. In fact, the interesting thing is that all my presidents sort of, my guys, form a family tree. You start with LBJ, whose hero is FDR. FDR's hero is Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt's hero is Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And Abraham Lincoln's hero is George Washington. So they all come together in our history. 
when you read this book, you know, it makes these people appear, I think accurately, about being just you know, hyper-productive and always on and super efficient. Dr. Covey, our co-founder in The Seven Habits of High Effective People, the seventh habit is sharpen the saw, right? About how productive, effective people still take time to relax, renew, refresh, repair. Do you find that any of these presidents were ever off and they did that? Do they have much personal time for reflection and renewal? Well, that's what's amazing. We think of ourselves in this complicated world as not having time for reflection or renewal. They were pretty busy. They had civil wars. They had, you know, World War II. They had depressions, and yet they all did. I mean, Abraham Lincoln actually went to the theater a hundred times during the Civil War. He said when the lights went down and a Shakespeare play came on for a few precious hours, he could forget the war that was raging. And it gave him time to think just to, by moving the channels of thought into another direction. Teddy Roosevelt actually exercised two hours every afternoon in the White House, a raucous game of tennis or a hike mm -hmm. in wood, the wooded mm -hmm. cliffs of Rock Creek Park um, or a boxing match or a wrestling match. And somehow that relaxation allowed him to think more clearly. FDR had a cocktail hour every night in the White House during World War II. And the rule was you couldn't talk about the war. You could talk about gossip or books you'd read. Somehow he was able to relax. And at one point he went on a 10 day fishing trip when England was in the worst moments of the early days of the war before we were in it with Pearl Harbor. And while he was on that fishing trip, he came up with a whole lend-lease idea, which allowed us to lend our mm. weapons to England and all of our allies later. It was like a brainstorm because he was away from it. Lyndon Johnson is the outlier here. He never really could relax. And I think that's what wore down his energy in the long run. I remember when I was with him at the ranch and we were in his swimming pool, I would think we're gonna exercise, but instead the pool was filled with floating rafts, with floating telephones and floating notepads so that he could work at every moment. He didn't wanna to go to the movies because he couldn't talk in the middle of the dark. So in a certain sense, I see my other guys were able to do that. And Lincoln also had a sense of humor and he could relax by telling funny stories. He said that it would whistle off sadness. They had extraordinarily different ways of doing it, but I think it each elongated their possibilities as a result. Fast forward to modern times, I'm guessing with your access to presidents and interviews and writing, you've met, I'm guessing, most if not all modern day presidents. And what you see as a citizen is, you know, one president critiquing another on how often they golf or relax or whatever. Do you find that modern presidents are still able to have good balance, too much balance, not enough? I think it's much harder today. I mean, I think because everything travels with you as a modern president, as it does with all of us. You know, the email is there, your cell phones are there, the White House staff is surrounding you. I mean, just imagine what it would be like as it was for Teddy Roosevelt. He could go away for an entire summer. He could go on a hunting trip for three weeks and the press wouldn't follow him. They were just afraid and hoping that nothing would happen to him in the middle of the time that he was away. We gave them more leeway, I think. Well, Congress was closed all summer long before air conditioning. So I think there was an understanding then that you had to you have to somehow recover your energy. But now it's, it's almost, I think it's much harder for a president today to even find the time to think, much less to relax. Doris, let's move a little bit from you as a historian of the presidency to what I would say as a leadership expert. I've heard you write and say that of all the characteristics of a great leader, empathy and humility are top. And I think you aren't alone in that. Jim Collins, you know, who defined the idea of a level five leader in good to great, talks about the power of humility. Dr. Covey says the same about the power of empathy. Uh, but there must be a little bit of incongruence with leaders who have the need for 
humility and empathy also have to balance the ego, the hubris, the sort of bravado that it takes to win and become a leader? Do you find there's some dissonance in that? And how do you reconcile those two things? Now, I agree with you. I mean, I think what a leader has to have is the confidence to be so confident that they're willing to admit their mistakes, mm -hmm. to realize that humility means that you're going to not do the things you want to do it sometimes you're going to have to look back and say what did i do wrong and then grow as a result of that i mean lincoln was the perfect example of that um whenever a mistake was made or something didn't go well he would stay up all night writing a memo about what had gone wrong and what mistakes he himself had contributed to and yet he still had the confidence to know i'm probably the best guy here anyway as difficult as this position is same thing i think for teddy and franklin they they would say to themselves you know, it's all right if something like Franklin said, I, I can't have the best batting average a thousand, but if I can bat a good 300 and if I make mistakes, as long as I learn from them, I'll correct them. I'm not going to walk the carpet at night and say, why did I do that? I made the best decision on the basis of what I could do at that time. And then if it's wrong, I'll learn from it and I'll change it. But I think it's that combination. You're absolutely right. It's confidence, but it's the ability to have humility. But the empathy thing is huge. If I had to choose one quality, I think the ability to see what other people are thinking, to anticipate their views. When Lincoln had to make the decision about the Emancipation Proclamation in a cabinet of which many people didn't think he should move in that direction, the war would never come to an end. He anticipated all of their objections and he answered them. And then when the time came, he said, I've now made the decision and I hope you'll come with me. And because he had listened to them for so long, because he understood their points of view, even though some still disagreed, they made it possible for him to go publicly with them all agreeing. And that's the mark of a leader, I think. You know, I, you mentioned the idea around apologizing, admitting mistakes. At Franklin Covey, we talk about just that, is uh, offering apologies, admitting mistakes, righting wrongs. Why do you think so rarely we ever see a president stand up and say, you know what, I was wrong, I see it differently now, and now I'm going to take this course. It seems like there would be a massive outpouring of appreciation for that, but you never see that in a president. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I think it is a mark of even greater confidence that you can say that. I do because too. You, know that you can move on. It's not a sign of weakness. I mean, look at the moment. There was one moment when JFK and the Bay of Pigs had gone very badly, and he admitted that he had made mistakes and that this was an error. And then his popularity then went up. He said, I don't understand this. The worse I do, the better I, I seem to be in the public. But it was the public understanding that, of course, he could understand. And then he grew from that experience. So when the Cuban Missile Crisis came, he was far better prepared to deal with it because of the mistakes he made in the Bay of Pigs. Doris, almost every president has faced some kind of, you know, big leadership challenge in their career. You know, it's been written about by George W. Bush's presidency was changed fundamentally by the terrorist attacks. And for that matter, his father the same with the Gulf War. To what extent do you think adversity and maybe even a crisis helps to define the presidency or a leader in general? Oh, I think without a question, especially if it comes early in the presidency and it gets handled pretty well, then I think you get the confidence to go on from there. I mean, think about what happened with FDR. He comes into the presidency and the, the it's really almost the depression is at its worst moment. People have taken their savings out of the banks. The banks are collapsing. People are without jobs. Hungry people are in the streets and he has to become responsible for this situation. And on the very first day, he understands that he has to do something about the banking crisis. So he shuts the banks down for an entire week 
and then he has to persuade people that he's going to get a bill through the Congress that will let the, sh the strong banks exist and the sh they'll weaken the strong up. It'll let the strong banks exist and the ones that are weaker will be able to be shored up. So what does he do? He has a, a fireside chat where he talks to the people of the United States in that conversational, intimate tone, explains what had happened to the banks, why it was safer now to bring your money into the banks. And the next Monday when they open, everybody brings their money back into the bank. But he had established through that the understanding that as long as he could explain problems to the people, he had 30 of these fireside chats. It was said that when he was on the radio, you could walk down the street, as Saul Bellow, the novelist, said, and you could watch everybody looking at their radio in their living rooms and their kitchens, keep walking and not miss a word of what he was saying, because his voice would come booming out into the neighborhood. And then there's a story of a construction worker going home one night. His partner said, where are you going? He said, well, my president's coming to live with me in my living room tonight. It's only right I'd be there to greet him when he comes. That intimate conversational tone that he established during that crisis to help the people through the banking crisis became the main mark of his presidency through that and through World War II. Every, every leader yeah. has to figure out the yeah. mood of communication for their time. Yeah. Lincoln had gift for language, so written speeches were what people read at the time. Right. Teddy Roosevelt had that punchy language, which was perfect for the new national press. FDR had the voice for radio. And then Reagan and JFK had the voice for television and the presence for television. Now we've got social media. It's a much more complicated situation, I think, for our leaders. You might have just answered this question, but for a moment, take off your historian hat and put on your leadership coach hat. There is a trend around leaders being encouraged to run with their strengths and go with their strengths and minimize and even kind of ignore their weaknesses or uh, their, you know, their challenges. Do you have an opinion on if you were if you were a coach to leaders grooming their talents, what advice would you give them versus the time they spend on their their strengths and kind of running with those versus shoring up their weaknesses? Well, I think the most important thing, for example, when Lincoln put his cabinet together was he knew that he didn't have certain experiences. So he had to fill his weaknesses with people who had those strengths around him. And so he didn't know anything about foreign policy. So he had Seward, who was his chief rival, who would understand the world at large. And I think if you can figure out what your weaknesses are, it's not just acknowledging your errors. It's that everybody has certain strengths. For example, Lincoln was too merciful in some ways in pardoning soldiers and he needed somebody who could be tougher to mm. it, instill discipline on the part of the army. So he has his war secretary, Stanton, who had once humiliated him when they were young lawyers together. He brings him into the cabinet because he knows he's tough, he's a bully, he's intense, I'm kind, I'm sensitive, I might be giving too many people too many chances, I have a hard time firing people. This guy will be able to do those. And they became great partners and Stanton ended up loving him more than anyone outside his family. So I think it's understanding where you need to be shored up and what kind of people can do it in your inner circle. Doris, for people who watch you on all your interviews and read your books, I think it's fair to say, I would say you are both a pragmatist and an, and an optimist. And uh, as interviews that I've watched of you, you're very uh, encouraged about the future because you think, you know, what's the alternative, right? Wither and die. Right. What's your prognosis for the coming couple of years? You know, we're a few weeks away from the midterm elections. My sense is as soon as the results are declared, there'll be the first, you know, exploratory committee announced and someone will announce their presidency. What do you think the next 28 months looks like for American politics and leadership? Well, what I'm hoping is that the American public will look at the candidates and judge them according to a leadership index. 
I mean, it's much more important than how they appear in a debate, how much money they've raised, even what promises they might have made. I mean, think about if we looked at them in terms of what kind of humility do they have? Do they have empathy? Can they control their negative emotions? One of the great things Lincoln was able to do was to write a hot letter to somebody when right. he was angry with them, yeah. put the letter aside, and then never need to send it because he had cooled down psychologically. So if they're able to do that, if they're able to communicate with the technology of the time, if they can hold back from the social media and not let them, their emotions come out at that moment, that they can have patience for it. There's all sorts of traits that you can look at and you can see, do they have curiosity? Can they build a team that's strong-minded but yet can come together as a whole in the end? Can they give purpose to their power? If only we had that kind of index and we were judging our leaders on that, I think we'd be far better off than the entertainment value that is so much a part of our political campaigns today. It's amazing how little has changed, right? I mean, in 150 years, we're still looking for almost the exact same traits in leaders, you know, the hot letter you described from Lincoln is the same today in email, right? We, we, we draft emails and those of us who know about restraint know, draft the email, but don't send it. Go to sleep, think about it and come back the next day. I mean, nothing has changed in 150 plus years. In fact, I got a letter from a CEO after he learned about the hot letters and he said he had just written earlier that day an email to a subordinate thinking he had done something wrong and it was really pretty blistering the letter, the email. And then he decided, I think I'll save it instead of send it. And he found out the next day that he'd been wrong about the information. Wow. So he said, Lincoln saved him. Yeah. So there are these little techniques I think that people can learn from leaders who've done it in the past. There are patterns of behavior, you know, how to make an impression when you first get in, how to bring a team together, how to listen to diverse opinions, how to make a decision when you have to, even if the team hasn't reached a consensus, that that's what was so much fun for me to see about the combination of these things. And they're all different, how to take it. When do you take a risk? I mean, when LBJ came into office, he decided that he would make civil rights his number one priority. His advisor said, you can't do that. You'll never get it through the Congress. And he said, at a certain point, he said, what the hell is the presidency for? I'm going to throw in all my stack on this particular issue. And those are the moments. When do you do that? When do you hold back? Timing is so important. Lincoln understood if he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation six months earlier, he would have lost the border states. If he'd waited any longer, he would have lost the morale boost it provided. But he was sensitive to timing, which is something that all leaders have to be, too. So that's why it's so much fun from learning from these guys. And they also, you know, they, they're different. They came from different paths. And yet they all somehow were able to meet the crisis of the moment that they faced. Doris, in the book, there's so many, again, rich stories. I, you can tell your sort of love affair for Teddy Roosevelt. In, in many ways, you talked about his, his sort of entrepreneurial style of moving out of DC and going out and from being a, from a very affluent family, talking and, and connecting with everybody in the nation at different levels of you know, socioeconomic uh, experience. And in many ways, he was sort of a master of that back when media wasn't following him. Uh, translate what he did so well into I think what social media is helping presidents do now in modern times. Well, I think what he did was he understood that he had to get out of Washington, that if you're in the headquarters, you're going to only be getting information that maybe coming up the line is what they think you're going to want to hear. So he was six weeks in the spring, six weeks in the fall on a train, whistle stop train going around the country, stopping at every city, listening to newspaper editors, listening to complaints about which ones of his programs were working and which were not. And then he just kept going along the way. And there's a great story where he was constantly waving to people who would come to the little road crossings along the way. And he was waving at one point to a group and he got a rather cold, if not really mean reception. 
and until he was told he was waving frantically at a herd of cows. But that shows how much energy he had to want to meet and greet with every person. Yes, you can do it through social media. And yes, you can do it if you're a CEO through email. But somehow, if you can figure out how to do it with persons, I mean, Lincoln used to have ordinary people come into his office for two hours every morning and they could tell their stories to him about why they wanted a job. These are the days before civil service. And after a while, his secretary said, Lincoln, you don't have time for these ordinary people. He said, you're wrong. I must never forget the popular assemblage from which I have come. So I think it's important for leaders to figure out how to get out of the little bubble they're in and learn from people outside how they're viewing your leadership from the outside in. And that's what these guys were able to do. Doris, in our final couple of minutes here, I'd like to make the transition to sort of um, you know, business-style leadership. Uh, I, I pretend for a moment that you were a chief human resource officer or a chief talent officer, and you were responsible for interviewing and making decisions on retention and recruitment of new leaders in any company, for-profit, not-for-profit, private-public. Uh, walk us through the top eight or ten traits that you would look for in grooming and uh, attracting leaders in your company? Well, I think maybe you'd start with something we talked about earlier. You'd start with asking them, you know, where was something that you failed and how did you deal with that failure? Not just where are the things that you're going to present to me that are your strengths. Hmm. I think you'd look for curiosity. You would look for presenting situations to them so that you could see whether they have that empathy. You try to understand how they articulate what it is that they want. You probably want to understand what's their vision for their own future. How are they seeing themselves somewhere down the line 10 years or 20 years from now? Is it a realistic vision and how do they intend to get there? You know, I, I was interviewing one time um, the guy who was the manager of the Chicago Cubs, Theo Epstein, and he said he had learned when he got to the Chicago Cubs that it was important to look for not just the person who had the best stats, who maybe had the best resume for how he would become the best baseball player on the team, but suppose he had he made an error and then the team won. At the end of the day, was he feeling good because the team won? Or suppose he'd hit a home run and the team lost. At the end of the day, was he feeling bad because the team lost? You're looking for that larger sense of self that's not just yourself. And I think obviously HR people can get that through interviews or for understanding how the person fits into a larger pattern than themselves. Speaking of baseball, are you encouraged about your team? I am encouraged about the Red Sox. We'll see what happens tonight. I was once a Brooklyn Dodger fan, and then they left me and went to California. Right. So then I became a Red Sox fan when I moved to Boston. So if the Red Sox are not in it, my old loyalty may go back to the Los Angeles Dodgers. But I love baseball. There's something about transmitting baseball from a father to a child, as my father did to me. It's where my love of history started when he taught me how to keep score while listening to baseball games so I could record for him the history of that afternoon's Brooklyn Dodger game. So I think in some ways that's what made me think there's something magic about history to keep a beloved father's attention. Yeah. So baseball will always be my, my avocation. It's the way I relax. We've had season tickets for 35 years. When I get into that park, I don't think about history. I don't think about the presidents. I just think about the team. Doris, as you look back on your life, what was the major pivot point that took you in the direction that, you, that you've taken. Was it accidental? Was it purposeful? Did a person believe in you and give you a hand? As you look back at your career, what was the key pivot for you? You know, I think in some ways it was storytelling that I began with, not only telling that story of the baseball game to my father, 
but my mother had had rheumatic fever as a child, which left her with a damaged heart. So I always wanted to ask her stories about what she was like when she was young and could jump rope before her illness set in. So I was constantly saying to her, mom, tell me a story about you when you were my age. And I never realized how peculiar that was until I had my three sons who never once have said that to me. But storytelling became a really important part of the way I thought about the world. And then I had a great teacher in high school, a history teacher. I think it's always a teacher who can, she loved history so much. When I remember when she talked about Franklin Roosevelt's death, she had tears in her eyes. And I thought, oh my God, the passion that she has for somebody in history. And again, I had a great teacher in college. So I think it was just a matter of loving history and loving stories. Hmm. And then somehow okay. it could have been attached to another part of history, but it got attached, as I say, to the presidency because of that experience of being with LBJ in those last years of his life when he was so sad because of the Vietnam War that he opened up to me in ways that he never would have had I known him at the height of his power. And I think talking to him and listening to his stories, and he was a great storyteller, um, was only honed my own storytelling skills. And that's what I like to think of myself as a storyteller. And I think all of the guys that I communicated with, my old dead presidents, they told stories. Lincoln was once asked, why do you tell so many stories? He said, because people remember stories better than facts and figures. And I think that's true for leaders in any field, that if you can have a beginning and a middle and end to a story, it's going to be part of what illustrates whatever you're trying to say better than PowerPoints on a screen. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I've seen your three-month month launch schedule for the book. It's insane. Uh, you could give Teddy a run for his money. You're all over the nation right now. What's next for you after this book? I, I heard you say earlier it took you seven years, I think, to write one of your books. What's next for you? Well, before I start finding that person that I might spend another seven years with, um, a partner of mine, Beth Lasky, and I are working on some movie projects. I had such a great time working on the Lincoln film. You know, to just be able to take Daniel Day-Lewis to Springfield and show him all the sights and then be part of the rehearsals, working with Tony Kushner and with Steven Spielberg, made me realize, God, movies can be fun too. So we're working on a couple movie possibilities and a couple television possibilities. And I know that they take a long time too, but at least they're right there and it might not take me that much research in the same way as it does to have a new guy come into my life. And before I choose that person, I'd love to find a woman, actually. So I'm, I'm thinking about what the next person will be. But the, the one worry I always have about these people that I choose is that I learn as much about them as I can. But then in the afterlife, there's going to be a panel of all the presidents that I've ever studied. And each one's going to tell me every single thing that I missed about them. So if I have a new guy, I have to make sure to get it all in there. And then the first person to scream out will be Lyndon Johnson. How come that book on the Roosevelt's was twice as long as the book you wrote about me? Typically, <laughs> LBJ. Fast forward, November 2020, uh, election night, president wins. She or he gives you a call the next morning and asks you some advice on what are some things they should do in their presidency. What advice would you give her or him? Maybe the clearest thing to do is to just say, why don't you read about the past presidents? I mean, it's a very small club, this presidential club. And if they can read, as Harry Truman, who hadn't gone to college, he loved to read about history. Um, Abraham Lincoln became somebody that FDR and Teddy Roosevelt read about. In fact, when Teddy Roosevelt was in the middle of a coal strike, a terrible, formidable struggle, he read eight volumes that summer of, of Abraham Lincoln's life. And he said, I kept learning from him. So I would say, you know, other people have been through the same situation as you read about leadership, read about presidents, read about history, and then stay up at night and, until you finish them. Then you can work on the presidency during the day. 
Doris, I so appreciate your insights. The book is extraordinary. I speak for all of my colleagues around the world when we're so honored that you gave us this time today. I wish you great success in the coming weeks with your book. On the next title, hope to have you back someday as well. We're so grateful to you. Have a great rest I, of the book tour. I'm grateful to you as well. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for joining us. And we're so honored to have had Doris Kearns Goodwin on On Leadership. How cool is that? And we'll see you back here next week with our next guest. Have a great week, everyone.